Hello. Um, welcome back to the couch. <laughs> I have Travis here with me today. Um, do you want to tell them a little bit about yourself? Uh, my name is Travis Moreno. <laughs> I play wheelchair rugby with the Canadian national team. I've been playing rugby for uh, 17 years now. That's so long. It's crazy. It's wild. With the national team for 12 years. 12 years. Oh my god. <laughs> um, how many international tournaments, like big international tournaments, would you say you've been to? Oh wow. So, uh, world championships in 2006, 2010, 2014. Those were big ones, and then the Paralympics in London and Rio. So you've been to two Olympics already? Yeah. Are you going to try for a third one? I'm going to try for four. <laughs> You're going to try for four? So Tokyo 2020 for sure. Yeah. And then I'm going to try for Paris if my body holds up. Okay, yeah. I'm rooting for you because that's, that's a lot. It's a lot of Olympics to go It's a lot. It's ambitious, but yeah, that's where my head's at right now. That's awesome. That's so, so, so good. And out of all of the para sports that you could possibly do, like, why did you pick this one? Uh, it was kind of a natural fit for me where before my accident, I played hockey and football and did judo and I liked the contact sports. And wheelchair rugby was kind of the only contact uh, para sport out there besides sledge hockey. And mm -hmm. It was just a good fit. I had a lot of fun with it. I've always enjoyed team sports, so. That's awesome. Did you ever play the able-bodied version of rugby? I never did. It was always the same time as football season yeah. in high school, so I never got a chance to, but it looks pretty crazy. Yeah? I like wheelchair rugby, yeah. Um, so I'm not as familiar with wheelchair rugby. Um, I guess, like, walk me through like the premise of like what that looks like. Okay, so it differs a lot from able-bodied rugby. Uh, we play four side. Okay. We play on a basketball court. Uh, you score tries the same way, where you cross the line with the ball. Yeah. And the contact's the same, where you know they're trying to stop you. Yeah. And stop your forward progress, but we can pass the ball forwards. Okay. And uh, we're given a point classification based on our our relative level of function. Okay. So three point five being the most able of us. Okay. And point five being the least. Okay. So of the four players you have on the court, they have to equal eight points. Okay. So that way you have a mix of different uh, function and classifications on the court at the same time. Oh, that's really nice. Yeah, it levels the playing field and it adds like a different level of strategy to the game where, you know, you have a 0.5 player mm -hmm. who has very little muscular function compared to a 3.5 player, but they need to work together to be successful. And, I mean, good low pointers, good 0.5s, good ones, they're so valuable on the court. They're like super key to any success you have as a team. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, how many of these guys have you played with for like a really long time? Um, we, we've we just had some retirements and we're at, we have a younger team now, but there's a core of five or six of us on the team right now that have been together for a decade. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's, that's wild. That's so... It makes it, it makes it a lot of fun when uh, you know, one of the players I played with longest, Trevor, uh, you know, one of my best friends. We've lived in New Orleans back in the day. Yeah. <laughs> and we both started sport at the same time, had our accidents around the same time. So, you know, to be able to travel around the world with them and go 
go through all the the highs and the lows of sport has been pretty pretty cool. That's awesome. Um, where do you think? Uh, I know that this sport was kind of like invented here in Canada. Yeah. Um, is it popular everywhere else? Yeah, yeah. So um, in the traditional like rugby countries like England, Australia. New Zealand, South Africa, a wheelchair rugby is really big and popular. They have really strong teams and strong traditions surrounding those teams. Mm -hmm. And I think it's gaining a lot of popularity in some of the other countries. Brazil and Colombia, I know their teams have had a lot of success lately and they're kind of on the rise. Oh, that's so good. And a lot of European countries too. Um, do you see kind of that same growth pattern in the para version as you see in the able body version, like I know, I know for us, like we've been very fortunate to be back in the Olympics, yeah. like with rugby sevens. Um, has 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 wheelchair rugby always been a para sport, or is that? Uh, so it's the first year that uh, got into the Paralympics was in uh, Atlanta in '96. Okay. And ever since then, it's been kind of gaining popularity. It's a really spectator-friendly sport, so. Now it's one of the more key para sports in the Summer Olympics, where it usually occurs near the end and in the big stadium. It's always sold out. It's pretty wild to to play in front of like a packed stadium. Yeah, where has been your most memorable stadium play? Uh, so there have been a couple really good ones, I think. London in 2012-60, yeah. where we weren't expected to do as well as we did. We finished with a silver, and coming in, we were ranked, I think, fifth. Yeah. So uh, I think the the crowds kind of got on board with that, and the, the GB team got knocked out, so I feel like they kind of rallied around the Canadians. <laughs> <laughs> so we were playing to, like, it felt like a home crowd, yeah. and it was packed. It was awesome. And then in the Pan Am Games in Toronto recently, uh, we were on home soil, we got the gold, and that was really cool to play in front of a home crowd. That's amazing. So you've won a silver in the Olympics, you won a gold at the Pan Am Games. How do you guys think, um, I guess like leading up to Tokyo, um, Obviously, like everyone goes in a tournament, it's like wanting to bring home gold. Um, and you mentioned you had some uh, retirements, so the team looks a lot different. But um, I guess, like, how are you guys doing right now? Um, we're definitely kind of retooling, rebuilding the team. We've got a really young team now, uh, so we've got world championships this summer in Australia, and I think. We're really realistic about where we are mm -hmm. and how we're going to do. So maybe fifth would be a great finish for us. But I think we're doing all the right things and I think we're heading in the right direction to hopefully challenge for a podium spot in, in Tokyo. Oh, that's awesome. Um, how has your accident, I guess, like changed how you view sport and, and the kind of impact that it's had on your life, whether it's been good or bad, um, but I guess like sport, I, I guess like sport for me has always been like a tool, right? It's yeah. It's been something that I've been able to pursue because I love it. It's, it's also been, you know, sources of inspiration. It's been an outlet for me to work through things. 
Um, so I would imagine that that might look a little bit different, kind of pre-accident versus post. Yeah, wow. That's a great question. So pre-accident, I was heavily involved in sports. Yeah. You know, I loved it. It was a big part of my life. But it was, it was recreational. I mean, academics kind of took priority over that. And um, I never really saw a future for myself in sports. Yeah. You know, I always kind of put limits on myself. Like, well, you're small. You're not super fast. You're strong. Like, there's only a certain level you're going to be able to get to. Right. And then after my accidents, uh, playing sports, again, it was the same things. That was my mindset starting out. Mm -hmm. And once I got more involved, I saw like the broader scope of what I was able to achieve in sports. It was all like dependent on me and the attitude I brought in and the effort I was willing to put in. Mm -hmm. But I also saw like a whole different side of sports, especially in para sports, where coming out of rehab, you know, it was really tough where I didn't have a lot of function and I wasn't sure how independent I would be able to be. Mm -hmm and what my life would look like after my accident and going out to wheelchair rugby and seeing the athletes there and seeing how guys with the exact same amount of function as me, you know, had jobs, girlfriends, cars, and like really independent, really normal lives. Mm -hmm. It really helped me see that for myself. And then also within that sport, like they taught me so many things like little tricks and like little life hacks for how to get around yeah and it really opened minds to what I, what I was capable of and I think now it's a really cool it's a really cool role that I think all of the veteran guys have taken on themselves where yes we're trying to teach the younger generation players like how to play and yeah how to best represent Canada but we're also showing them our little tricks <laughs> and how to get around and life stuff and I think that's a really important part that sports and parasports in particular. Yeah. Um, do you foresee yourself um, staying involved in the sport long after you've retired as an athlete? I think, yeah, I think, I, I mean, I just, I have so much love for wheelchair rugby that I think it would be really tough for me to just walk away completely. Mm -hmm. So whether it be coaching or just volunteering, helping out, I think even post like my professional career I'll still be playing recreation. Yeah. I think lifelong just to stay active and because I love it. But I definitely see some involvement in the future. Yeah, because I know like on on our side of things you can be involved in the sport for as little or as long as you want to. Yeah. There's a lot of guys that will come in and they'll play and they kinda hit their peak and then, you know, other life things you know, kind of take over, you know, it's, they're starting to have families, their careers are really building, you know, they want to explore and do other things, and then, and then there's those of us that just stay involved in the sport for, mostly for life, and, you know, and it's, like, for myself, like, I've been extremely fortunate to work in rugby for as long as I have, and as far up as I have, and, you know, possibilities are definitely endless, but I feel like it's, it's something that you, you really want to have to be involved in yeah. post-sport, right? Yeah, I think so. And I think it's great to see, for myself, um, a lot of the older guys who have retired, yeah. they're no longer playing with me. I still get to see them all the time playing club ball and traveling around. And 
you know, it's funny that like they're retired and they're playing, you know, recreationally, but they still <laughs> have that intensity and they still still get just as fired up and it's great to see and I definitely see that for myself in the future. Um, it was funny, I was I was in Japan last year. Um, you know, I was a little burnt out from work so I I went and traveled and I went I went home for a little bit and uh, what's really interesting over there is um, there's some of those guys that are still playing in like their 70s or 80s. Yeah. The level of contact is dictated by the color of shorts you wear. <laughs> um, you know, so I, I can't quite remember the scale, but I, I believe, I'm not like 100% right here, so like don't quote me on this, but I think it's white shorts is like no contact at all, and then it kind of stems down from there. So. You know, you'll have guys that are like in their 60s, 70s, 80s that are still, you know, they're still running around because they love it so much, but it's like, don't tackle that guy. <laughs> it's not wearing the right color shorts, but this guy over here, like, he's fair, he's fair game. Um, so in the para version, um, do they kind of demark out level of contact in any sort of way? Uh, no, they don't at all, but that <laughs> might not be a bad idea. I mean, I think too in the future when you see Older and old, older players still playing. Yeah, it would be a great idea. But I think within the sport, there's a there's a high level of respect that you have out there. Where I mean, especially when you're not playing internationally, you're playing regionally for fun. Yeah. There's some really young players, and nobody's going out there to kill them. Yeah. And there's some older guys. Yeah. Where you're probably not going to lay a big, <laughs> a big hit and lay them out. <laughs> Hopefully not anyway. Say most of the time. I mean, it happens sometimes. Uh, I find that some of, it's some of the older players that are just like, you know what? Like, I still got it. Yeah. And they'll just they just kind of go for it, you know. Like I know for us, like we have we have the old boys. It's the guys that are over forty. Yeah. You know, some of those guys have been playing rugby since they were really little. Yeah. You know, but like in their minds, they're just like, I still have a body of a twenty-five year old, and I still. I still got it. I think I definitely <laughs> have that mindset too where I'm older now, I'm 35, which is fairly old to still kind of be playing at this level. And in my head, I'm still 25. Yeah. So I still like, <laughs> oh, I can train hard every day and I don't need time off. And like, oh, I'm injured, but it'll heal in a couple of days. <laughs> and my body's not quite on the same page. Just <laughs> have, you, have you found, you know, because you're obviously like in your like your mind is still quite like young right and you're still very invigorated about competing internationally representing Canada but have you found that as you've gotten older because I know I have uh, that injuries that would have taken maybe a couple months to heal yeah <laughs> I definitely have noticed that where I mean I was having problems with my neck yeah and I thought like it was an injury I'm like man this is like it's just been bugging me for the last, you know, couple months, which turned into a year. Yeah. And I kept getting it looked at, it, getting it looked at, and finally my doctor was like, "Well, you're just, you're just a whole <laughs> That's just what happens. I mean, you play a contact sport for a decade, and that's kind of what happens to you. And then your doctor is like, "No, David, you're just old." Yeah, like, it's just yeah, it's just going to be stiff in the morning, and it'll loosen up. <laughs> got like a little bit of arthritis in there so oh you know <laughs> I mean like I'm, I'm not that much I mean you know just set about a year younger than you but 
like I don't want to think about that. Like I don't want my doctor to just be like, you know what? Like you're not. There's nothing actually wrong with you. You're just old. <laughs> I've definitely noticed a lot of changes too. Where, um, like my hand, for instance, I've got some function in my hand, but not full function. Mm -hmm. um, so, like my pinky finger, like I can close it. Yeah. And I can open it, and then this finger just opens, but it doesn't close. Right. But this finger used to be my very best finger. Like, it could close and open really strong. Yeah. So I could grab things with it, yeah. and I could do all kinds of stuff. But I had it, it was broken really badly uh, in competition. And ever since then, like, it just doesn't close anymore. <laughs> so, like, my best finger for everything. Oh, and now, no. like, it's just the worst. Oh. Yeah. I mean, that happens, sadly. <laughs> I know. Sadly. Yeah. Um, how did you, I think, I think when we had chatted earlier, you had mentioned while you were in rehab, that's how you got introduced to this sport. Yeah. So, what happened was, uh, I broke my neck snowboarding mm -hmm. when I was 17, and a pretty bad accident, and, you know, I was, I was pretty messed up, and my poor parents had to get that phone call where, like, Gotta get to the hospital. Um, so going through that and then going through rehab, I was just—I felt like I was so lucky to be alive. That mm -hmm. you know, it really helped me come into the injury and my post-injury life with a positive mindset. But in rehab, um, my recreational therapist was uh, Duncan Campbell, okay. who was the inventor of the sport, actually. Amazing. Yeah, so when he, once he heard that I had a background in sports and I played a lot of football and hockey and baseball, he was like, you've got you've to try wheelchair rugby because he's still very active in recruiting mm -hmm. in sport. So he brought me out to a practice when I was still in a neck brace, still in rehab, and I remember going to the gym, and before I saw anything, I could hear the crashes from the chairs, and oh my god, this sounds pretty crazy, and watching guys play, getting knocked over, mm -hmm. I just, it was, it was uh, really eye-opening for me, just because I didn't know anything about parasports before my accident. So to see a sport that I'd never heard of mm -hmm. uh, was really cool, and learning all the, the rules and everything, and uh, once I started playing, I kind of got hooked, and yeah, playing a ton ever since. Have you tried any other parasports? Yeah, I've tried almost them all. So I still play wheelchair basketball for fun. Yeah. Recreationally with the uh, Victoria team. Go Chargers. <laughs> uh, and it's a completely different experience where it's purely for fun. Yeah. And it's a great time with a great group of great teammates. But in wheelchair basketball, I'm a low pointer. Right. So I'm playing with a lot of able-bodied people. Mm -hmm. So my role is like so different. In, in basketball compared to rugby where you know, I'm shooting maybe two shots a game. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody wants to pass me the ball. <laughs> I'm just out there playing defense and setting screens. Yeah. <laughs> but it's a lot of fun. Yeah. And then uh, I also tried tennis too, which I was not great at. <laughs> and it's just not a sport for me. I'm not an individual sport guy. Yeah. I just remember the one like big tournament I played in, it was so hot out. The guy I was playing was just taking forever. 
and I just remember freaking out when we were playing this. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's good to kind of like expose yourself to like different things. Yeah, and for kind sure. of like really see like if if this is for you and it brings you some joy, or if you know in in the tennis example if it's something that's <laughs> definitely not not your thing and that's okay. Um, you know, and I think there's there's a lot of diversity out there, which is really great. There's a lot of options um, for people to kind of try out and explore, and and really see you know if that's a good fit for them or not. Yeah, I think that's the really cool thing is that for almost every able-bodied sport there is, there is a para-sport equivalent mm -hmm. that you can try out. And, you know, you don't have to jump into it and play at the international level. Like, a lot of stuff you can do just for fun. And I still like hand cycling for fun. Yeah. All, all of, like, all those other things, table tennis. Yeah. Yeah. Um, have you dabbled in a winter para-sport? Um, I have not really. I've we've talked a lot about uh, possibly curling as a retirement sport. Some of the guys <laughs> putting together a curling team, yeah. but I mean, actually, it's like easier said than done. Where we've seen some of our para curlers, and we're like, oh my god, we're not that good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I mean, I'm sure that I'll get around to trying them all. Actually. I don't think I've ever been curling before. That's a very un-Canadian thing. <laughs> I feel like I feel like almost everyone else that has moved I, here, you gotta give it a shot, or has lived here, has gone curling. I have never been curling before. If anyone wants to take me curling, <laughs> I know the winter's almost over, but just put that out there. I've never actually been. Um, you know, but everyone I've ever talked to is just like, this is actually surprisingly like really fun. Yeah. It is. I mean, there's only a certain amount of sports you can play, like with the beer too. Yeah. So that's what's good. Um, do you have any? I guess like you're quite accomplished as a as a national level athlete. Is there anything out there athletically that is still on the bucket list that you haven't gotten to yet? Oh, for sure. <laughs> I think a gold in the Paralympics is the big goal. And, like, there's a bit of panic in me where <laughs> I can see my window shortening and mm -hmm. the amount of games I have in me left to one went down. And, like, s facing the fact that I might not ever get there yeah. is tough, but it also gives me some appreciation for the su success we have had in the past and for how cool those moments have been. Um, does Tokyo, does the Olympics in Tokyo hold any significance for you? I think so. I think it holds a lot because um, I'm a Japanese-Canadian descent yep. where um, my grandparents um, are from Japan, but they came over when they were quite young. Uh, they were interned during the war. So I think to go back to Japan and compete there would be a pretty special experience. Yeah. Have you ever gotten a chance to compete in Japan before? Yeah, yeah, I've played, um, Japan has a quite a strong winter rugby team, so they host quite a few events, so I usually every year we go there for a competition. That's great. Yeah. Um, I was really fortunate I got to see the opening round of Super Rugby when I was there last year, and uh, for such an understated crowd, what I mean by that is people are very polite over there. Yeah. Uh, they're like really into it. Yeah, they have some super fans there. 
like, they're real into it. There's a guy sitting behind me, and he's like, he's an older guy. He's just like eating his fried fish, just watching the game, just having a great time. <laughs> and we kind of turned her, like my friend and I, she's um, originally from Hong Kong, and you know, we tur turned around, we're just like, we're definitely in Asia, watching rugby. You know, like, like things are very seemingly calm over here right now. Yeah. You know, like, it's, you know, it's, it's Japan's only super rugby team. It's, you know, the Hurricanes were there. They were um, the reigning champs from the season before from New Zealand. You know, so it's like, this is a very much, like, underdog situation here. But everybody was so into it. Yeah. And it wasn't an obnoxious energy, you know? Yeah. Like, there's just something about it where it's like, this is really calm energy. But like you can tell that it's like it's really fired up and people are super passionate, and they like stand behind their team like whether they do well or not. Yeah. Um, I think that's really great, and um, I'm so excited that the Rugby World Cup is going to Japan next really? year. Yeah, I think we'll be competing in that. It's yeah, so it's exciting. it's super exciting to kind of like see it, and people over there are just they're just getting so excited to have one of the biggest. I think Japan's always been one of my favorite travel destinations on on our circuit that yeah. we go to. Um, so then where do you guys normally, I guess like where where is your circuit base? Like I know um, in our able-bodied, for sevens anyway, um, the HSBC circuit usually starts in Dubai and it yeah. kind of like goes around and it ends up. So where do you, like where does your guys' circuit start? So, our international rugby season is kind of different every year. Okay. Where, like, there's Paralympic years, there's World Championship years, and there's the off years in between. Okay. So our international travel schedule, like, is really dependent on who's hosting. Yeah. World Championships or where the Paralympics are going to be, and then um, we, they're centered around a couple big international events. Where Canada hosts one. Um, Great Britain is usually hosts one uh, in Australia. Mm -hmm. Usually hosts something in Japan. So those are kind of that's kind of the rough outline, and then the other tournaments get filled in mm -hmm. depending on who's hosting what. Um, and how long are your guys' tournaments generally? Uh, we usually play a tournament, a big one, out over the course of three or four days. Okay. Uh, with one or two games a day. It's usually a round robin. So it's a, it's a similar format to sevens. Yeah, yeah. Um, how long how long is a wheelchair rugby game? So we play four eight minute stop time quarters. Okay. So the average game will last about an hour and a half. Okay. And uh, yeah, we have 12, 12 men and women rosters. Yeah. It's a co-ed sport, and uh, four side at a time. And you know your cycling players in and out to keep people fresh. So it's a yeah, it's a great team game. Oh, that's amazing! I've never had a chance to try it. I have watched it. Um, funny, funny enough, uh, when we met, I happened to be at the Olympic Global that day when there was a tournament going on. I was sitting in a high performance clinic, and our facilitator for our clinic, he was like, "Hey, if you guys happen to stick around, there is." a wheelchair rugby tournament going on here this week. So he's like, head on, 
remember if it was upstairs or downstairs from like where we were. Yeah. And he's like, go check it out if you have a chance to. So um, I didn't have to run back to work for another couple hours, so I like stuck around and watched. Um, and it's such an interesting premise because it's a it's a little bit more. I would say in line with sevens for us more so than fifteens. Yeah. Um. Just the way kind of like the pacing is, the amount of players on field at a time is a little bit more similar to sevens. It's crazy how much the sports changed over the years too. Mm-hmm. Where when I started, things were a lot slower, a lot more set pieces, uh, and the strategy was so different than now. Where it's definitely turned to a speed game. The technology in the chairs is. It's gotten really crazy where the wheelchair rugby chairs we play in now are nothing like the ones we played in when I, when I started. Yeah. Like, they're strong, but they're lightweight. They're super responsive. Um, the way we're strapped in mm-hmm. and the bracing that we use, we, you really feel like you're one with the chair. Yeah. And the speed change has been incredible where athletes are just so much faster mm-hmm. and stronger. And I mean, a lot of it has to do with the chairs, but yeah, also people have a greater understanding of how to train and proper nutrition and yeah. all of those things. Yeah. So the game is getting really, really fast. Yeah, because we see that on our side as well. Like if you look at athletes from even 15 years ago and you compare them to the athletes that you see now, <laughs> uh, that difference is quite profound. <laughs> Um, you know, the guys are getting a lot bigger and getting a lot stronger. Yeah. Uh, the game pace itself is a lot faster. Yeah. The way that World Rugby has, has kind of amended the laws allows for a much more free-flowing game. Yeah. So there's a lot less stoppages. Um, it flows a little bit faster. Um, and so in turn, that just the overall pacing of it is much faster. Yeah, we've seen that in our sport too with some small rule changes and just to really increase the speed of the game. Yeah. Has it been hard to keep up? Yes. <laughs> when I started, I was, you know, I wasn't a big guy. And it just seems like I'm getting, I'm shrinking. <laughs> I don't know what they feed the kids of today. I know. We, uh, we had a, a young, a young superstar player, Zach Medell, uh, in Canada. And he started playing, I think when he was 16. Yeah. And already, he was much bigger than me. And then watching him grow, like, now, seeing him, I mean, he's humongous. He's covered in hair. Like, man. Some of those kids, you see them, like, over the course of the summer, and they've just, like, hey, you've now grown, like, a foot. Yeah. You have now grown out this way. Yeah. By, like, half a foot to a foot. Uh, you're, like, a man. You're not a kid anymore. Yeah. You kind of still act like a child a little bit, but like you are the body of a man. It it amazes me just how quick that changed, and it also amazes me just how just how much bigger the athletes are getting now. Yeah, and I know for me it's really helped keep me hungry and motivated. Where I know I have to work really hard and I have to stay on top of my nutrition. Mm-hmm all of those things if I want to s- s- keep competing at this level. What do you, um, what do you do to motivate yourself on days where you don't want to train? I think that's always a struggle, <laughs> but 
for me, I've been really lucky where I trained out of two training centers here in Vancouver and in Toronto. And in both centers, I have great teammates who, who keep, we keep each other honest and accountable and we keep each other working hard in the gym. And there are also two different dynamics, which really helps keep things fresh for me, where in Vancouver, you know, I train with Trevor mm -hmm. and Byron and Fabian and well, well veterans, well older older guys who've been around. And we we're always pretty open and honest with each other when someone's not working hard. Yeah. Someone needs to pick it up and it's a great dynamic for training and it's I've had a lot of success in that environment. And then in Toronto, that's one of my newer training groups. I'm there with some younger athletes mm -hmm. where I feel like I have the responsibility to kind of lead by example and to get into the gym first and to work hard mm -hmm. and to push the other guys and kind of show them the right way to do things. So it's two different environments that both I think, really help. Because there's definitely days that I know that like the struggle is real. Oh yeah. Getting out of bed is hard. Getting getting like just dragging ass to the gym is hard. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's days when you're there and you're just like your brain's just not you know, it's just not it. I was I was at training a couple weeks ago and you know, one of the guys he's uh he's with our premier team and you know, he's a young guy, he's about twenty four. Um He's a good rugby player, he's big, you know, he's, he's naturally talented. And when I saw him at the beginning of training, he's like, you know, he's super enthused. And kind of by the end, he's like, no, I just lost you. Yeah. You know, he's just, uh, you know, I was like, I was training, he's like, oh, it did not go well. You know, you just kind of like, you lose steam. Um, but like, how do you find, like, what do you find works for you when you're at a point where like, you start off pretty good and you just kind of like. For me, what helps to keep the intensity up and to keep our focus up is to, to make it fun. Yeah. Where when we go into a training, we're joking around, we're having a good time. Yes, we're working hard, yes, we're keeping each other honest and accountable, but it's it's to do that without losing sight of the fact that it's a pretty great job we have and we're pretty lucky and fortunate to be able to do it. Mm -hmm. And I mean, we all love the sport, and we all love to play, so why shouldn't you train every day? It be a blast. Mm -hmm. um, you had mentioned that you had some aspirations to coach. Do you coach now? Uh, no, not really. I mean, every once in a while, I'll step in and help out when they need uh, someone to coach a regional team. But, yeah, I definitely want to finish my level two coaching and, and get my feet wet more there. And, pick up the slack mm -hmm. where they I feel like rugby in Canada they they're starting to have a need for more coaches on the club levels mm -hmm. so to, to step in there would be pretty cool yeah but it's tough um, when you're focused on, on performance and on world championships mm -hmm. and Olympics so I think in the future that will definitely be something yeah step into more I definitely think you know, as a as a former player, like having having coaches that are passionate, um, you know, really helps. And then now now that I've stepped away from from high level play mostly, like I still play high level sevens, but um, to kind of like step away from that and, and just wear the coaching hat, 
Um, it's a really interesting experience when you're now the one that is, you know, technically working with athletes and helping to keep their passion alive so that they keep the sport going and they keep, like, fueling the growth. So as an athlete stepping into a coaching role, yeah, do you think it's all, like, it's all positive and helpful, like, having the, f the athlete frame of re reference for coaching? Um, I definitely do. Like, I, I mean, some of the best coaches I've had did not play at the international level. Yeah. And then, in turn, some of the really great coaches I've had have played at the international level, but all of them have played the sport in some fashion or form yeah. for quite a long time, and they bring that that perspective and as long I think as long as coaches are willing to continually learn yeah. and know that like you know as technology advances and as the knowledge of human physiology like how to build your body better and stronger how to repair it when it's you know when it's not working as well um, how to feel your body more efficiently you know and, and, and things like that how to work on you know that that mental aspect, the sports psychology, you know, to kind of keep athletes that are in that high performance, high intensity training cycle, kind of keep them sane. Um, as we get better at doing all those things, we get better at knowing how to adapt to those things. I think as long as coaches are willing to continually invest in themselves to to learn those things, having the kind of that athletic framework, that mindset. Super helpful because you can think back to yourself and be like, "Hey, like I was 18 at one point, or I was 21 at one point in my life, and these are the things that I struggled with." So, I, you know, you're a bit more empathetic to athletes you're working with because you're, you're kind of like, "Hey, I've been there, and I like I know what you're going through." Yeah. But like, here's how we can help you to get to that next step, or like how we can help you like get past if you're in a bit of a slump, like how we can help you get. I think, that. I think that's a cool thing we're seeing in our sport where when I started um, all of the coaching and all of the coaches were were not former players mm -hmm. they were just kind of coaches from other walks of life who started coaching with rugby and now we're starting to see our first crop of international coaches who are former players and I think it makes a big difference where, like you said, they have that empathy for you as an athlete, and they understand the struggles you're facing, and they can help with like how they themselves mm -hmm. overcame those same things. So, I think it's really cool to see former former athletes in coaching roles. Um, you know, and I definitely think it's it's really good to kind of see athletes step in um, to those roles at a variety of different levels. Yeah. It doesn't always have to be at the high performance level, but you know, to have someone that's super passionate, you know, develop that next kind of grassroots generation, right? Uh, if you don't have a very strong grassroots base, like, you can't feel the high performance base because you know when to farm up. But you need passionate people who, you know, want to develop people and they want to keep that, that kind of fire going. Um, on our side, like, officials having really good quality refs. Um, Trying to get people into the refing stream is particularly quite hard because a lot of times younger guys are just like they want to still be playing. Yeah. A lot of the a lot of the guys that I've seen that have been extremely successful at officiating, it's because they cannot play anymore. 
Yeah. Um, they've been kind of like their doctors, like you physically like cannot do this anymore. You know, so that's a, that's another way to kind of stay involved in the sport if coaching is, you know, really not your thing. Um, so I'm always really excited when I talk to coaches that are young, and they're like they're super enthusiastic and they really want to be there and they they want to soak up as much knowledge as they can. And, and in in the kind of realm of coaching, like I am very young, um, I've been doing it for a while, but you know I don't have 20 or 30 years professionally under my belt or anything like that. So you know, so when you talk to some of these guys, like, you know, their play their professional playing career was like twenty years and then their professional coaching career has already been like twenty or thirty years. Like they've just been around for a very, very, very long time. And it's it's nice to kind of see, you know, coaches that are in our age bracket that are I was yeah, do you think that because you're younger and you're not so far removed from your playing career, maybe you have some fresher insight into like strategy and and that kind of thing. Um, I, I definitely think so. I mean like when I started playing rugby, the cadence in the scrum was a lot different than what it looks now. Yeah. Uh, the distance between the two front rows is a lot bigger. So the impact initially was much harder. Yeah. Um, so the strategy back then was, you know, you'd throw your biggest guys in the tight five. You'd throw some, like, super fast guys in the back row, but, like, size wasn't, you know, generally they were a bit bigger than your, your backs would be quick, but they'd generally be quite small. If you fast forward to now, and you look at the size differential between our tight five back row and our backs, a lot of those guys are around the same size, regardless of what position that they're in. Yeah. So the strategy becomes a little bit different. So having kind of been involved in that time period where, okay, like you're a big guy, you're gonna you're gonna be like a prop, like yeah. that's that's your life. <laughs> Whereas now it's kind of like we have guys that are big that are props, but we also have flankers that are almost as big as the props. The yeah. only difference is they're just a lot more mobile. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, guys are starting to get a lot faster. I know in sevens, there's a lot of teams out there, um, I don't know if they do this for you guys, but um, they put the GPS trackers at the back of the jerseys to be able to see if you can stay at your VO2 max yeah. velocity for however long percentage-wise. And when they test your speed, it's like, if you're not fast enough, like. You either go and you play at a lower level where you go hire a speed coach to get faster. Yeah. Or you're not playing at this level anymore because you can't because that's what that standard has, has been at. Um, so kind of having that insight as a player that's not as far removed means tr strategically I can look at things and be like, okay, especially if I'm working with athletes that are under 25, yeah. a lot of those athletes, some of them have hit kind of their physical not their physical peak, but it's kind of like, this is as tall as you're going to get. This yeah. is probably, like, as big as you're going to get. Like, we can put on some mass on you, but you're not going to be... Your body isn't going to be heavily changing like it did in your adolescence. And, you know, when the, when they're kind of... Athletes are kind of in that 16 to 19 age pool, even up to 21, like, that's when their bodies are changing the most. Right? It's kind of like, you might be able to, you know, like, you, we might easily be able to pack on 30 pounds of mass on you. Yeah. Because your body is just already in that changing mode. Yeah. So if we shift its focus a little bit, like, we can 
we can make these substantial physical changes. We can change your speed, we can adjust your diet, and all of those things. So strategically, you look at players being like, okay, I can use you here right now, uh, but in a couple years' time, this is probably where you're going to be a better fit. Yeah. It's no longer like, this is where you are, and this is where you're going to stay for the duration of your career. Um, do you see kind of parallels in, in that sense in the Paris sport world? For sure. I think, especially with a team like ours, where we have a huge range now, where our youngest player is 18, mm -hmm. and our oldest with our, our national team is 40. Okay. That's quite so a big It's span. a crazy range. So <laughs> within there, like... Your role over the course of your career is going to change. Yeah. Where, you know, starting out, you're an energy guy. Yeah. And you're coming in and, you know, you're using your speed and your explosiveness and creating an impact on the game. And then as you get older, you're coming in as a tempo change. Right. To play more of a ball control game and to use your experience and your technical knowledge to exploit other teams who maybe don't have that same experience or the same rugby IQ as you. Right. So it's been it's been cool for myself to see my game evolve over the years where I'm now able to use the speed I do have. Yep. <laughs> so much more effectively than, than I was when I started. Mm -hmm. Um sky's the limit, obviously, right? Because we're shooting for 2020, Tokyo. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully Paris after that. Yeah. Um, I guess in closing, like, people want to know more about you. They want to know more about the sport. Yeah. Where can they go? I think uh, a great place to start would be cwsa.ca, mm -hmm. and that's the Canadian Culture Sports Association website. We're going to be rebranding soon to uh, Canadian Wheelchair Rugby. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that's a great resource to follow Team Canada and our adventures and where we're traveling to next. And uh, also on Instagram and Twitter, if you follow Wheelchair Rugby Canada, you'll be getting updates. Amazing. On where we're going. Awesome. Where are you guys off to next? Denmark. We leave for Denmark on Sunday. On Sunday, Denmark. Yeah, that'll be a, a good one. And that's all in preparation for World Championships this summer. Awesome. And World Championships are in Australia? In Australia, summer? in Sydney, in August. It's hot as balls in, in Australia in the summer. If anyone who's never been in Australia. You don't think that'll be their winter, though? Like, it's their winter, it's still quite It's still going to be hot. It's yeah. still warm. Like, don't let that winter Brandon fool you. <laughs> It's not actually that cold there in the winter. Um, well, good luck in Denmark. Thank you. Um, I look forward to kind of like seeing like what you guys are up to while you're over there. So again, websites, you can check out Twitter, Instagram, Canadian Wilshire Web Rugby, and the other website. CWSA.ca. <laughs> um, awesome. Well, thanks, Travis, for, Thank uh, for being on here. Uh, look for this episode to be dropping pretty soon. And, you know, stay tuned, come back every couple weeks as I have honest conversations on the couch with other people. <laughs> <laughs> awesome, thank you. Thank you. Hi, thank you so much for listening to this new podcast venture that I've started, The Athlete's Wandering Couch. Now, you're probably wondering why I named it that. 
Um, when you don't have permanent recording studio space, you kind of make do with what you got. And so what ended up happening was I moved around to other people's couches and bam, there's where, where's the name. So I'm really excited um, to be launching this venture. And if you liked what you heard and you wanted to know more, um, check the links down below. You can find this episode on our YouTube channel at The Athlete Directive. You can also find this on iTunes, Google Play, and SoundCloud at The Athlete's Wandering Couch Podcast. Travis Morrell, thank you so much for being on the episode. And I hope that you guys tune in. We'll be releasing episodes every two weeks. By the way, to celebrate the launch of this podcast, it's actually my birthday today. So thank you all so much for your unwavering support. And if you want to give a birthday gift to me, subscribe to the podcast. We'll see you in a couple weeks. Thank you. Bye.